What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I'm talking to Frances Alderhalden from the University of Central Florida about her research on mental health and suicide. This is episode nine of On Tenure Tracks. And so that's great because like we're we're so often discouraged from doing me search, right? Like it even has that cutesy, like derogatory nickname for stuff. Yeah. And in reality, like most people are doing research, like it interests you for a reason. Like it's it's very rare that something in our work like falls out of the sky and you're like, Oh yeah, I'm just randomly into this thing. You know? Yeah, I tell that to my undergrads all the time. Like they get to choose a topic for their research methods class. And I always tell them, like, it should be something you're interested in because otherwise you're going to get bored or not be invested and not want to study it. So to some degree, hopefully we all are interested in what we do <laughs> and what we study. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I definitely think having kind of that personal connection to it, but I'm still able to maintain um, some objectivity, of course, because I've never been incarcerated. I've never been in jail. I mean, I've been in jails to research them and study them, but I've never spent any time as someone who was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm able to separate it, but I also can draw a lot on my own personal experiences about maybe why certain things matter, what, what variables might be a factor that haven't been looked at. So um, for example, I've done some stuff with hopelessness uh, in order to kind of see how this emotionality is tied into different behavioral outcomes. And it's something that maybe wasn't as encouraged as something to research, especially in criminal justice or criminology, but emotionality is something that I'm glad is starting to come to the forefront of looking at behaviors and looking at attitudes. Um, 
so it all kind of tied in together to what what I ended up, you know, deciding to do for a lot of different projects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you must be at that point where it's like your dissertation idea is everything. Like <laughs> your whole life is <laughs> is the dis. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, self plug. I'm on the market, and mm-hmm. um, I'm defending my prospectus next week. Um, but since I did primary data collection for my dissertation and went into facilities and built a survey and had um, self administered surveys done mm-hmm. to look at these suicidal behaviors, so that includes suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts, self harm, and self harm intent, um, and kind of the spectrum of suicidality as opposed to just those completed suicides, which of course would be a retrospective study. So this, this is kind of getting at some, a little bit more of the whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've been fortunate enough or persistent enough, however you want to look at it <laughs> to, I collected in Florida. And then I also was able to do a replication study in Texas where I added additional questions. So while my dissertation is on um, looking at correlates of suicidality among people incarcerated in jail, I have now done additional studies looking at other outcomes like adverse childhood experiences and suicide. Um, I'm collecting again next month at another large jail and going to build on what I've already done. So I'm kind of in this very mindset of mental health and health criminology. Super cool. So um, for people that are listening that might not be aware with like some of the language and the terminology that you're throwing out there. Um, could you yeah. talk a little bit about what the spectrum of suicidality means? Sure. So this is something that is only recently becoming um, kind of a concern among suicidology literature. So people that study suicide and the FDA has been pushing since about 2014 for a uniform definition that doesn't just look at suicide. So suicide is defined just as completed fatal result of someone's self-imposed injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so suicidality looks not just at completed suicides, but it looks at ideation, so thoughts of suicidal behavior, um, prior attempts, so not completed suicides that didn't result in fatality, self-harming, um, and self-harming intent. So anything that's done with the intention of a negative impact on oneself. Mm-hmm. Those all together encompass this construct of suicidality, uh, which gets at the spectrum. So there's, it can be anything from thoughts of intended self-harm to minor self-harming, which no self-harm is really minor, but on the spectrum, on the lower end, um, all the way through very serious uh, suicidal attempts. So it's the spectrum of suicidality because it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not just all or nothing. There's all these different behaviors that make up this one construct. So would would minor self-harm be something like cutting or does that refer to like, I don't know, like heavy drinking or substance use? Um, Substance use and drinking would definitely be included. Um, So when I say minor self-harm, that's really a bad, like almost a misnomer Mm -hmm. um, because really any self-harm is not, not, you know, shouldn't be deemed acceptable or, or the proper way of coping or using it as a coping mechanism. So there's a variation in psych literature that minor self-harm is things like um, intentionally drinking to blackout, um, taking drugs to numb any sort of feelings or emotions. Um, Cutting behaviors would be more in the middle range of what a self-harming behavior would be. But again, the spectrum is going to really depend on the individual. It just encompasses all of these different behaviors, not just completed suicides. Okay. 
I completely just lost my. (laughs) Uh, At the beginning, you said that um, there's a tendency in the media to only talk about completed suicides, and and so there's this whole world of um, stuff happening in in prisons and jails of um, I wrote down unsuccessful or or uncompleted suicides, and so what do you what are you finding there? Like how is it like a? I don't even know how to ask this question. To me, it feels like it would be like a chicken and egg kind of a thing, right? Like. Um, being incarcerated decreases mental health and increases the risk of suicidality. And then suicidality like worsens the incarceration experience. Right. Right. Yeah. There is some temporal ordering problems that exist with this, but um, well, so first of all, suicide is the number one cause of death in jail Mm -hmm. Um, that beats out any other health concern. So we're dealing with a population of individuals who already are at a high or increased risk of health problems, diseases, HIV, um, heart problems, um, all sorts of health issues. And still, suicide is still the leading cause of death among people um, incarcerated in jail. It's the third leading cause of death of people incarcerated in prison. So jail has a much larger issue and we know that people cycle through jail. There's a higher population. There's 11 million people annually that are being incarcerated in our jails. Some of those repeat um, offenders. But mm-hmm. when we're looking at this, you know, so what my dissertation is doing is seeing importation factors, so factors that preexisted before individuals came into the facility, as well as then looking at deprivation, so things that occurred after um, or because of the environment of the jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and both factors matter. So unfortunately, it's hard to parse it out, right? Because they're all so interrelated. And there's also compounding factors. So one thing that's highly relevant is feelings of loneliness. Mm -hmm. Well, someone could come into the facility feeling lonely, but then they could also be lonely because of the circumstances of incarceration, being isolated, being confined away from family. Um, So being able to dissect this is something that I would love to get at it at a later time, but because I have cross-sectional data, it's a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I think doing interviews with individuals who are incarcerated would be able to tap into this a little bit. The problem is getting people to talk about their mental health issues Yeah. Um, when it's not anonymous is really difficult. Oh, for sure. Um, so a minute ago, you had talked about hopelessness, and that's what I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about, um, that in your opinion, you see hopelessness coming up more and more in criminological literature, and that it's something that maybe theorists are starting to take more seriously. Um, and it's like to the point where it's a named concept, right? Um, right? So how do you how do you get at how somebody's experiencing hopelessness? Like how would you operationalize that? Sure. Um, okay, so I actually recently had a paper. Um, ex- well, it's I guess it's um online first already. And we're looking at futurelessness is how we defined this hopelessness construct. But it literally asks, do you have hope for the future? Okay. Uh, so in my dissertation, I actually have a four item measure of hopelessness. And so it asks a couple of different questions about do you have hope for the future? Um, are you hopeful about your life? Do you feel helpless and hopeless? Um, so that one's a little bit double-ended. I, I know it's an issue, but it is what it is. It's too late now. <laughs> I can, you don't have to apologize to me. I don't have any any power over any anything in your career. <laughs> um, so there's a few different ways. I know um, Picaro and colleagues have looked at futurelessness, 
So there have been some studies done on that. Um, it's the same general idea of looking at not seeing a future and feeling feeling hopeless, having mm-hmm. having this emotional attachment. So these questions all ask with an emotional component or feeling behind them. They're not asking about a behavior. It's all about the internalized um, feeling behind current and future state of mind. Mm-hmm. So I agree with, I agree with you completely. Um, and as I hear you talking about hopelessness and as we're having this conversation, I think about like how my undergraduates would re- would react to this. Um, mm-hmm. And so for better or worse, I've, <laughs> I've friended several of them on Facebook, right? Um, okay. and, and students who have graduated. And so my Facebook feed now is like just a wall of memes about feeling alienated and hopeless. And, okay. and the students will tell you that um, they're joking. Like they're really, I don't know that they're really are joking though. Um, as I say this, like they're really worried about the economy and Trump and climate change and like everything that everybody is worried about. Right. And so they will, they will post these memes about wanting to die, um, stuff like that. And then if you try to calm out on it, then they'll turn it into like, haha, no, I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. So like, how do you, isn't that kind of like, so I get that, but part of that I think is this this unfortunate stigma problem that we have where maybe we really are feeling that way or maybe they really are feeling that way and they're at least aware of it enough that they're going to share a meme or mm-hmm. what are GIFs, GIFs, I don't know what the proper <laughs> terminology is, <laughs> but they maybe we'll share something like that, but then when it gets too close and too personal and all of a sudden, even if they trust you and they, they're friends with you and they respect you as a mentor or what, what have you. Um, but it gets almost too close where it's like, well, I don't want to be labeled or have this attached to me that I have this feeling or this, Mm -hmm. this reaction or this outlook on life. Um, and so it's quick to be like, well, no, that was just a joke. I mean, we do it all the time, right? When we say something or hear someone say something offensive about us. And then we're like, Oh no, I was just kidding. Or the person says I was just kidding. Uh-huh. But really we all know that it, it, <laughs> it wasn't just kidding. Right. It yeah. Was, I think, um, I think of it as like, uh, like jokes about, about two boys being affectionate to each other. Right. Like, like guys who are friends who want to tell each other like how important they are and will do so in like a joking way. Um, but okay. it's still like very clearly understood that like your boy is telling you how important you are, um, and in yeah. a way that doesn't like threaten any of their sort of heteronormative ideals, right? Like, so yeah, it like that vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I kind of view it in that same lens, like, oh, I want to kill myself. Everything's terrible. But then you're you're saying it in a sarcastic voice, but really, like, you're really alienated or isolated or hopeless. Yeah, and not okay. I mean, at the end of the day, we all, I mean, people say all the time, like, oh, I want to kill myself or I want to kill this person. And not everyone is going to act on that behavior. Mm -hmm. But that shouldn't mean that it should be normalized terminology or normalized, um, you know, a normalized construct that we're saying Mm -hmm. all the time, right? Because that's some sort of deep down in your brain and in your mental state, something that is okay, your brain is okay thinking that and saying it, mm-hmm. you're already to a point where there's some level of concern then, at least from you know my research and what I study. Again, I'm not a clinical practitioner. I can't 
you know, of course. say that I am. Um, I'm just going off of my own personal experiences and, and then obviously what I've been studying for the last however many years. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if we're already allowing ourselves to think in that negative direction to the point where we're, we're joking even about taking our lives or, or joking about wanting to hurt ourselves, you're already allowing, not allowing, I mean, it's not like you're choosing actively necessarily this, this behavior, but mm-hmm. it's in your mind enough that it's, it should be something that's concerning and people should be able to reach out and check in on you and check and be sure that you're okay. And just let you know that, you know, I see you, I hear you, mm-hmm. I'm here for you. You do matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's really important. I think that's unfortunately, especially for incarcerated populations, you know, having these conversations about feelings and, and, and mental states is really hard because people are in this self-protection state and sometimes self-protection ends up turning into suicidal behavior. And that's, you know, not a healthy way to handle this. Mm -hmm. But if we're also not allowing these conversations to exist and be like, no, you're not alone. I'm also feeling this way. I'm also struggling. Um, It's hard to get at any sort of protective factor that we can put into play. So I think it's, it's probably at least to people in the social sciences who might be listening to the show, like pretty widely understood that um, prisons and jails are really the worst possible places for people with mental health problems to end up. And that the entire criminal criminal justice system has sort of morphed over the last 40 years or so into really the de facto mental health institution in the country. So um, my question is, um, do you think that there's anything that, that at least even just the ones that you went to, like that they could do better? Or do you think it's a situation of just like, we need to to start over and and figure something new out? Um mix of both so the two facilities i've been to one i can name one i'm not allowed to name Um, but i did one here at seminole county in florida that's what my dissertation is actually on Mm -hmm. and they do have a screening process in play for people when they're first um booked into jail and i mean there is a plan there is mental health providers it's just risk assessments are faulty, right? People don't report accurately on those. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes in the rush of of intake, people are going to be, you know, not depicted in the proper way. I mean, we have problems in Florida, not at this facility specifically, but in Florida, we've only recently started um, not dichotomizing race and ethnicity of black or not black. Like this is a major issue, right? So if we can't even do that with race, how are we doing this for mental health needs and, and for risk assessments? So, <laughs> yeah. Are you it, depressed or not depressed? Are you <laughs> right. anxious or not anxious? Right. So <sighs> I think part of this comes down to a need. And I mean, I saw similar things at the other location, the other facility in Texas that I, I collected data at. Um, and that, you know, there is some process being done, but it's just not being done to an effective, an effective implementation. And so it comes down to not just can we implement this risk assessment tool better, but also can we train staff and other and other people who are incarcerated or, or have some sort of almost like um, like a PREA type thing. So obviously very different, but have something where we're, we're making people aware, posting signs about behaviors or things or words to look for so that you can report each other, but not in a, a you know, a narking sort yeah. of way. 
Um, but in a, in a protective measure to say, well, now we're ongoing. So suicidal behavior doesn't just occur at intake, right? Like, mm-hmm. yes, that is a high trigger moment, but this is a, this isn't a stagnant behavior. This can change over time. And so we need to be sure that we're looking at it over time while people are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, the whole thing with risk assessments, it's just, it's just maddening, right? Like, and yeah. it's, <laughs> and I, I think it's creating like problems for, for people like us who do quantitative work, who have like a, a pretty strong statistical background to then have to come out and say, your quantitative, your quantitative stuff is trash, right? Yeah. Like your, your everything about what you're doing is, is horrible. Um, yes. I, I, I don't know that I've ever actually seen a good risk assessment or if they're like, that even might be an oxymoron. So can we talk a little bit about like why risk assessments assessments are, are bad? <laughs> like, sure. We can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I, what have you seen? Reasons. I mean, yes. I get the premise behind them and I'm, I'm not trying to trash anyone who loves the, you know, the R and R type model, but, um, there's a lot of just implementation issues and a lot of, you know, we're not really, also, when you're asking a quantitative type question, getting at a more qualitative feeling or emotion or behavior is going to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, risk assessments just, they need to be revamped in so many ways. <laughs> and, and this is important, right? Because like all, all joking aside, um, the direction of mental health conversations in the country right now is, is tending towards, you know, here's your presidential Fitbit that's going to monitor all of these factors about you and then alert the government that you're having a mental health crisis, which is absurd. Right. And then I, I can only imagine what sort of questions this administration would consider <laughs> as like, this is how we're going to assess whether or not you're a, an immediate threat. You know, that's well, really terrifying. problematic too. Like if we're asking these questions and people are worried that they're going to get. So one thing that we do in, sorry, sidetrack, it's related. But <laughs> one thing that we do in facilities all the time is we flag people for, you know, suicidality. And then in order to try and protect them, we place them in solitary confinement, yeah. which isolation and confinement is one of the highest risks for suicidality. So we're taking someone with this reported behavior and instead of treating them or, you know, trying to provide some treatment or some therapy, any sort of like cognitive training, anything like that. No, we're just taking them and isolating them. So we are protecting them from injuring themselves. I say that in quotes, Mm -hmm. Um, protecting them from injuring themselves because we're literally removing them from the ability or the opportunities, I guess, to do anything. But we're also further damaging their mental health and their mental state, which has lasting ongoing effects. Mm -hmm. And so one of the problems with, you know, some of this proposed stuff from the administration is that if we're going to be flagging people and they know if they report any sort of, you know, problematic thinking or injury, um, injury thinking or suicidal thinking, that they're going to be thrown into administrative segregation, they're going to be less likely to report. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's great that we can have these plans to to put some things into play, but if they're just going to further stigmatize and further make people not want to report accurately, we're really not getting at the issue or the ability to try and fix or prevent what's occurring. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are any like small fixes that prisons and jails could make to help mental health? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of them that, um, to the to best of my knowledge, hasn't been super looked into, and it's something that I'm definitely interested in doing. So social support is a huge factor in mental health and having that family support. So a lot of these facilities that are moving to um, video-only visitation, uh, which has its own host of problems, it's great as far as accessibility for people who can't get to see their loved ones. But when I, I mean, I'm talking primarily jails right now, and those offenders are typically situated in a place where they do have maybe some outside support from their family. So if we can have them have that face-to-face, that physical physical touch, being able to see and have their, their support system there and not via video conference, uh, that's something that can greatly improve in a relatively simple manner um, some of the mental stability of people who are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um yeah, <laughs> just, I mean, you, it's hard not to study this stuff and I, I think in general, but this topic specifically and not come away with like a, a real complete understanding of how cold hearted the system is. Right. Like, yeah. does this like the ruthlessness that, that some prisons and, and police and law enforcement and courts operate with. Right. Um, there was a trial here, a sentencing yesterday for a, a guy who, um, he, he has some severe problems, um, and he, he killed his father. And so he, um, he was pleading to that and his, um, immediate family was there and there was this moment and they, they put it in the paper and actually one of my interns was there for it, um, where the family asked if they could hug him, um, as part of their victim impact statement. And fortunately for him, like the judge that he had was very um, empathetic and, and allowed that to happen um, and told him and was quoted in the paper of saying like, you know, things will get better. Like it feels very dark for you now, but things will get better. Judges like that are what? Like 1% of the total population, right? Like that, that moment could have been so different for him and just the the fact that he was fortunate enough to have this particular judge, you know, allowed them to have that family contact and have sort of like, you know, try to find something positive out of this this terrible tragedy, you know. Yeah. No, so. it's so true. It's it's like when we get down to it again. Like my interest in this originally started from my own personal experiences, and. To think of if I'd had all these experiences that I had in my life and was less privileged or less fortunate than I than I have been blessed to be in my life, I would have a very different outcome. And not having the support that I have from my family, not having, again, like something as small as just a hug, like you just said, like, that's huge. Going without that, can you imagine going months without having any sort of physical contact with a loved mm-hmm. one or a friend or... I mean, we do it all the time and we don't even think about it mm-hmm. um, to, to be so isolated, not just physically by structure and environment, but also from that type of emotional connection to human beings. That's something we need. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why we're humans is that we have these emotional needs and these emotional desires. If we didn't have that, you know, mm-hmm. we might as well move to AI already. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I get your... Your Siri implant or whatever. <laughs> um, so how do you how do you broach this subject with students that you've you've been able to to work with and teach so far in your career? Like, 
Yeah. Because there are some parts of criminology and criminal justice where, and there's also like the students bringing in their own biases and stereotypes about what we do anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but like stuff like this, I, I would imagine might be more difficult to broach than saying like, you know, I, I studied victimization. That was what got me interested in this. And so that's something that I wouldn't necessarily have to think too much about presenting in the classroom, <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. So how do you, how do you talk about what you research with your students? Yeah, so um, I teach primarily research methods right now. Um, I have taught corrections classes, and I am teaching data analysis. But research methods, it obviously comes up pretty frequently when, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm talking about real-life application of some of the things that I'm teaching and what, what I do and what I study. Mm-hmm. Um, so I typically try and broach things as I try and depersonalize it. Um, I don't mention any of my prior history with my, my students or anything like that. Um, if they ask me specifically, I wouldn't really have a problem doing it. I think it's good to destigmatize in a, you know, classroom appropriate sort of way, Mm -hmm. but I tend to just leave that out, um, at Mm -hmm. first. And I try and really, when I talk about it, I, I typically start with how big of a problem mental health and mental illness is with our incarcerated populations. That's something that most people can relate to. So Mm -hmm. even if you don't personally identify with having any sort of mental health illness or any sort of, you know, trauma in your life that you've been through, um, most people know someone or have heard of someone or, or, you know, have some sort of connection to mental health. And so bridging it like that and not starting off with, you know, self-harm or Mm -hmm. suicide or, or these more triggering type phrases and words, just mental health as a broad construct and saying how prevalent it is and pervasive it is through our system. And then going from there and detailing a little bit more what I do. This is not just with my students, but something I had to broach very, very carefully with the facilities that I've worked with and with the IRB um, getting (laughs) questions approved, especially not reporting when people report, you know, suicidal ideation, like, I have anonymous data they, they I can't report any of that back. So yeah. um, just being careful about that. I also try and be really cognizant of providing services to students or pointing them in the direction of people that can help them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have, I have a website for my students and I have my Twitter page, which is open to my students. Um, but I also in like just our web courses, which is our online learning tool that we use here. Um, I post things about we have a student care center that that deals with all sorts of mental health issues. We have counseling services. I provide them links to, um, you know, Victim Service Center downtown Orlando, which is not affiliated with the university. So I try and give them a lot of resources and options so that if anything comes up that, you know, I'm not equipped to deal with students' mental health needs. I'm, again, not a a clinician. I don't Mm -hmm. have that capability, but I can refer to them to someone who can help them. Um, so I try and make it really accessible and, and try and just destigmatize as much as I can that, you know, we all go through things and it doesn't mean it's going to be a permanent factor in your life. But if you're feeling like you're struggling, it's okay to reach out. It's okay to ask for help. Um, so that's typically how I approach it. Most kids are really interested in what I study. I think because of that personal connection, again, if it's not them, but to someone mm-hmm. that they know. I couldn't think of a more positive note. <laughs> <laughs> to end your interview on yeah. than letting people know that it's okay to be not okay. <laughs> so, it is definitely okay to not be okay. Definitely. I mean, at some point in our life, I think everyone goes through something or goes through a moment and, you know, 
it's all right to just reach out and, and say, I need some help and I need some support. There you go. Thank you for your time, Francis. Thanks.